Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning, and uh, I'm excited for us to continue in our sermon series uh, from the book of 1 Peter, which we have been going through week by week, taking each text, especially some of the more difficult ones. I'm especially grateful for uh, Pastor Claude Hubbard, who preached last week on a difficult passage and did a great job of helping us to understand what that was about. We are in a section of 1 Peter as we're coming to the close of chapter 3 where Peter is laying out for the church a kind of battle plan for cultural engagement. He is showing the church, the church that's under fire in the midst of persecution, what their behavior and conduct ought to look like in the world to prepare them to be a people who have a, an incredibly winsome witness, even in the midst of all the difficulties that they are going through. And so he has covered what it looks like to not only engage the culture, but first, that it starts with that internal battle. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, he talks about the, the, the desires of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. So before we can have any hope whatsoever of being a witness in the world, the church has to master its own desires. There's an internal battle to be won. And then from there, he spoke about submitting to government. He spoke about submitting to employers and wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving and serving their wives. And in all of these things, it's very clear that, that Peter cares a lot about PR. He cares a lot about the church's reputation in the world because he knows that it is of paramount importance for the church to be living and breathing and acting in a way that gives glory to God, even when the church comes uh, under significant hardship. Uh, I heard that the Super Bowl commercials uh, were about $7 million for just a 30-second time slot. Uh, in the super, uh, you know, in the Super Bowl, so companies will spend a lot of money to try to to put their message out there and to promote their products. But you know, God has paid the ultimate price and and won the bid for the best commercial of all. He paid the cost of His own blood, and not just for thirty seconds, <clears throat> but rather for midnight to midnight, twenty-four hours a day. And it was not just airtime, but it was person time. It was you, you know, you and I. We are God's advertisement. We are his representation in the world, pointing the world to him. So in the section that we read today, uh, he's talked about, again, submission in these different contexts, but now he's going to broaden these instructions to speak to everybody. So this is for all those who follow Jesus. The, the three kind of topics for today, the what, what are we called to do, the uh, why we do it, and the how. So let's start with the what. When it comes to the behavior of Christians in the world, what does that look like? And uh, I'm just going to read the text for us to start. We are on 1 Peter chapter 3. This is page 1015, and you can read in your pew Bible or follow on the screen behind me. So he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then quoting from Psalm 34, he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you 
a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, and this is a very tricky verse, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits of prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So that's our text for today. Uh, we're going to be talking about, again, the, the, the what, the why and the how. So the what. What is the conduct of the believing community to look like? So take a look again. Uh, verse 8. This is talking about familial relationships, relationships within the body of Christ. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And it's important. So, so that list, you know, those are nice things to do, but it's important to remember the context here that when Paul is laying out these things, he's not talking about what you look like on your good day. He's talking about what you look like on your worst day, right? The church, this is a church under fire. And I think that oftentimes, and I'll admit that I, that I do this as well, is that sometimes when I'm under a lot of stress, I kind of use that as an excuse to act out. And I, I think that if I'm, if I'm going through a lot, I'm going through a tough time, I'm stressed, I, I give myself a pass as if because I'm going through that, I don't have to be kind and courteous to the people around me. But it's very clear that, that Peter is writing to people who are not having a good day, they're having a bad day. Right? These are people who are in the thick of life, who are experiencing persecution. And he's saying, this is your battle conduct. This is what your life the believing community ought to look like even in the midst of incredible hardship. And then he lays out these things. You ever been in the checkout aisle and you're in a rush and you just need maybe paper towels and a gallon of milk and the person in front of you is so slow in getting their stuff onto the conveyor belt and then they have to do a price check and so they have to send somebody back to the grocery aisle because the person's claiming that this thing was on sale but they got overcharged for it. And then, so then that takes a few minutes, and you're like looking at your watch and be like, what in the world is taking so long here? And then they pull out their checkbook, and they're going to pay by check. Takes them 30 seconds to write it all out, and you know, you're like going out of your mind because you're just, and so, you know, when you're stressed and frustrated and impatient, you're this close to, to just snapping and, and, and uh, you know, taking it out on somebody. But the thing is, you know, what, is, what does Peter say is that it, it's in the trials of life. It's when you're under pressure that your true colors are revealed. So maybe instead of asking ourselves, what do we look like on a, on a good day? We should say, you know, what do we look like on a bad day? Because it is in the pressure cooker, the, the, the fire, the trials of life, which he talked about in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, right? That reveals the true character of God's people, uh, the true faith that we have. So, again, these are instructions for the believing community, even on a bad day. He talks about unity of mind. 
Unity of mind, what does that mean? Does that mean that you and I have to agree on every single thing? No, it's not exactly what the word means. Uh, it could also be translated as harmonious or being like-minded. And the idea of unity of mind is that within the body of Christ, that even though we don't agree necessarily on every particular thing, that we have a, a, a shared identity as the people of God. And so there's a shared love, there's a shared purpose. And so even if I disagree with you on a particular point, I still love you. And that means that, that we can have that unity of mind. It's like if you're married, uh, you know, with your spouse, you might not agree on everything and you might have disagreements about like what fun thing to do over the weekend or what to have for dinner or whose particular turn it is to go and get groceries, but that doesn't mean that it's going to erupt into all-out fighting. There's the unity of mind. So he says unity of mind, have sympathy. Uh, in Greek, the uh, sum pathos, the two, two words, sum means with, pathos means feeling. So what is sympathy? It's like empathy, feeling with with another person. Uh, Romans talks in Romans 15, 5 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So again, this is on our bad day. In the midst of suffering, there's a togetherness that we have, a willingness to share with each other's pathos, with each other's feelings. We, we feel what the body of Christ feels. When I see you struggling, I, I enter into that struggle with you. When I see you joyful, I celebrate with you. And I think one of the tragedies of our world is that oftentimes we end up in emotional silos. And an emotional silo is, well, if I'm having a good time, you know, I don't really want to like, you know, dig down deep into suffering because I'm, I'm doing good. And so sometimes people, when they're happy and when they're joyful, they have a, a hard time entering into the suffering of others. The opposite is true, too right? Sometimes when we're in the struggle and we're in the suffering, it's really hard to celebrate with the people who are joyful. We say, I'm, I'm miserable here. Like, look at what I'm going through. I'm suffering. I don't want to share in your joy. I resent you for being joyful. And so we end up in these emotional silos, unable to have any kind of feeling that is outside our actual experience at the moment. But that's not what the body of Christ is called. The, the, the call to, we're called to sum pathos, feeling with uh, an ability to hold the tension of being sad and happy at the same time, which is what Christ did, right? Christ is filled with joy. He has an inner peace uh, and, and a gladness, and yet even in strength, even in gladness, able to enter into the suffering of others, able to be empathic with those who are uh, reeling, whether in poverty or in sin, and so that's part of sympathy. He lists also brotherly love, which is, comes from that Greek word Philadelphoi, which sounds like Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. He says, have a tender heart. Uh, you could also translate that as being compassionate. So the body of Christ, we, we, are, we are like a, a family, and there's a togetherness and a mutual caring that when you come into church here, right, these people that you're sitting next to are not just strangers, but truly within the body of Christ, there are family-like relationships and there's care. Just the other night, I saw this beautifully lived out. It was Friday night. We had this wonderful worship service here. And then at around 10.15, we were getting ready to leave. And all of a sudden, there was a major sewage crisis that erupted right back there. And so I panicked because, I'm not kidding, just sewage was coming up all over the place. It's been cleaned up. Don't worry. It's all been taken care of. But so I panicked. Me and Dave were back there. We're like, what do we do? And uh, we ran downstairs. And, and immediately, we're like, Kevin and John and Dennis and, and Jim, they all kind of, you know, came together and they, we, they ran up here and they helped and they figured it out and they made some phone calls. And it, it's just so beautiful to see the body of Christ 
Like, this is not their home, but they treated it like their home, you know? And it's, it was already late, and people probably wanted to go home, but here they are serving and, and just taking care of the church because, you know, we're a family, and this is our church. So that, that's what that looks like is a, is a beautiful thing. Um, and, and humility, right? That's also listed in verse 8 of a humble mind. C.S. Lewis described humility this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, not always having to be the center of everything, uh, not thinking, not despising yourself, but not always having to be everything be about you. So that's the conduct of the church within, but then he also, in verse 9 now, he's going to talk about the conduct of the church to the outside world. So take a look at verse 9 with me, on page 10,000, sorry, 1,015. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, <clears throat> but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So when it comes to the outside world, the relationships that are to be characterized by two principles, I'm going to call them the non-retaliation principle and the reversal principle. The non-retaliation principle is simply this, turn the other cheek. Right? Non-retaliation means when someone gives you attitude, you don't give them attitude back. When someone's harsh to you or cruel, you don't respond in kind. We don't fight, we don't curse. When somebody cuts us off on Route 17, you don't give the bird, okay? Um, I, this happened to me, Route 17, having moved to this area is one of my least favorite places in Paramus. I would gladly never go to Route 17, but especially on a weekend, but anyway, the, the people of God, we, you don't, you don't return fire in that way. It's not what we're called to. We, we don't try to be the tough guy. We don't try to fight back. We don't take revenge. It's non-retaliation. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is absolutely in keeping with the teaching of Christ in regard to turning the other cheek. So is the non-retaliation principle. The other principle that's important as well is the, what I call the reversal principle. The reversal principle simply means that you always return back better than what you got. Right? If people treat you harshly, you, you return it in the reverse way. You, you return it with kindness. If somebody gives you disrespect, you return it with respect. If they give you attitude, you respond with humility and gentleness. When someone does you harm in response, you don't harm them back, but you give them good. You serve them. So that's the what, the why. When I meet people and talk to them about Jesus and about this way of non-retaliation, turning the other cheek, I, I've had friends who say, that is crazy. Turn the other cheek? Do you really expect me to do that? You, you really think, like, if somebody hits me, I'm just going to, like, not, not respond and, and not uh, defend myself. So uh, it's pretty, I, I think if we're honest, it's pretty far-fetched in a lot of respects to a lot, to a lot of us, right? Because our human instinct when somebody hurts us is to want to hurt them back. It's the, the, uh, the base kind of natural human instinct, right? You wreck my life, I'm going to wreck your life. You come at me hard, I'm going to push back uh, just as hard. You break my heart, I'm going to break yours. You sue me, I'm going to sue you back. That is the natural tendency. That is our, our, our human kind of gut response. And the film and mu uh, music industry are just filled with all kinds of tales of revenge. And let's be honest, right, we love these stories. John Wick comes to mind. <clears throat> Somebody kills his dog. 
And John Wick goes on this massive revenge campaign to take down this incredibly big and powerful criminal enterprise. Maybe you saw Mel Gibson in Payback. You saw Viggo Mortensen, History of Violence, Kill Bill. So it's in the movies. It's everywhere. But it's also in our music. Taylor Swift, Kanye come to mind. Now we got Bad Blood. Um, Underwood, Carrie Underwood, Before He Cheats. Kelly Clarkson, since you've been gone, right? Everybody's afraid of the Louisville slugger now. If we, you do that, she's going to come and take out your headlights. And uh, my personal favorite would be <laughs> Goodbye Earl from the Chicks. <laughs> so we love this music, and we get a thrill out of seeing the bad guys beat to a pulp. It's like it satisfies this, this instinct we have to, to get even. And yet, um, the Scripture says that the church is God's leaving living, breathing advertisement to the world. And I believe that advertisements are probably most effective when they shock us, when they surprise us, and when they give us a radically new perspective on something and show us something in a way that we never thought about it before. And that is exactly why the standards that Peter lays out for us are the way they are. They are so unnatural and so strange That when the world sees the believing community acting in this way, non-retaliation and the reversal principle, their minds will be blown. Because it shows that there is an inner source of peace and strength that is otherworldly. It comes from somewhere else because it is not the norm within the society that we live at. And so Peter's hope is that in this way, we, we, the church, the believing community, become this walking advertisement to the glory of God. Look at verse 15 through 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, <clears throat> having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When people see your love and the fact that even when you are dissed, even when you are hated, you still love, this ought to make them curious. And they'll ask you for a reason, a defense for the hope that you have. That word in the Greek there is apologia. And and it means an explanation, a a defense. And uh, Why do you have this hope? How is it possible that I can treat you like this, but you treat me with love and respect, even when I'm mean to you, even when I'm harsh to you? right? When the world is coming after the church and persecuting the church and mistreating the church, and yet the church remains strong. The church remains in, uh, with, with integrity, loving, kind, not returning for evil, uh, evil for evil. Then the people will say, where does this hope come from? How is it possible that you can be so different? That is the whole hope here. And so that begs the question, first of all, is the believing community living in such a way that makes people curious? What about your life is curious to your neighbors? Do they see the way you experience suffering and hardship and say there's something about this person because I see what they're going through and I know that it's been rough for them and I know they haven't been treated well and yet they're not falling apart. And yet they still have a a joy about their person. They still have a hopefulness. Do our lives... Speak to something that is alien. Speak to something that is otherworldly. Does it make people wonder? Right. This is the hope that Peter has for the church is that, that their, their, their lives point to some other reality that draws people in and makes people curious about who is this God 
and that they say that they believe in, showing hope in the midst of suffering will make people want to say, wow, man, I want what she has. I want what he has. I want that strength. I want that resilience. Where do they get that? What's their source? How is it possible that even after everything they've been through and even after everything society has said about those people that they still remain so kind and so thoughtful and so generous? How can you deal with a harsh boss and not become devastated? Can you deal with persecution without becoming bitter and angry at the world? These are the things that are going to reveal the world to Christ. These are the things that are going to make people curious. We want to share our faith, but the thing is, is our faith worth sharing? Do people want to hear it? Are they interested? Are they being drawn towards it because they see what it looks like to be lived out, that strength that you have? And the other question that begs would be that if the opportunity comes for you to share your faith and to share that hope that you have with people, are you ready? Are you ready? What does the text say? Go back to verse uh, 15. Always be ready. Are you in a moment's notice? Do you have a testimony prepared? Do you have an explanation? Because, you know, what would be really unfortunate would be if you're a walking advertisement for God and somebody clicks the link and the hyperlink is broken. You ever had that happen where you, oh, this advertisement looks interesting. Let me click on it. You click on it and it says, the page you are looking for is not found. <laughs> and I wonder if some Christians are like that too. They see your life. They click Oh, show me, the, show me the reason. Take me to the source. But you're not ready. You're not prepared. And so you miss an opportunity to, to, to point God, to, to point others to this incredible reality that has, that has changed your life. So I would challenge each one of us today to say, you know, do you have like a 30-minute or one-minute explanation for why it is that you have hope? Can you, can you just like that, you make that turn and point people and say, yeah, it's not about me, but I have this hope. I have this resilience because I believe in a God who loves me. A God who cares about me. I believe in a God who is completely righteous, but he, he gave up his life for me. And so I feel called to, to, to be patient and to be kind and to love even people who don't love me. Are you ready? Are you ready? I went to Louisiana State Penitentiary once. I won't tell you why. You'll have to come and talk to me later to find out why. I was at Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola. But I met a lifer there. Anybody know what a lifer is? Lifer is a person who has been incarcerated for life. They, they committed murder or something serious. That they have no chance of ever getting out. And I heard the most incredible testimony. This guy said that, I'm glad I was put in prison because I met Jesus in prison. I thought I was free on the outside, but I had to, to come to prison and meet Jesus to know what true freedom was. He said that. A lifer in Angola State Penitentiary said that. Something about his encounter with Jesus radically, radically shifted his perspective on life. To the point where he could say he was better off there because he knew the freedom of Christ. That's what Jesus does in your life. He changes your perspective. He gives you a way of seeing things that the world would never be able to guess that. You know, Joseph has the same thing, right? Remember, his brothers came to him and they were afraid. And he said, you know, you meant this for my harm, but I'm not resentful at you. I'm not angry at you. I'm not going to take revenge on you because what you meant for harm, God has taken it and made it for good. Your encounter with Jesus is going to radically shift your perspective. That, my friends, is what people are looking for. That is what they need to hear. That is going to be what is an aha, light bulb going off moment for folks, and they realize what it is that's different about you. You have this radically different way of, of looking at your life. So 
final point. That's, that's the why. Why do we do these things? It sounds crazy. It sounds outlandish. Turning the other cheek. Non-retaliation. You really expect me to do that? Well, here's why. But how do we get there? And this takes us to the last part of the passage, which is, again, a really uh, difficult part of the passage. But one, the only way for the believing community to aspire to this level of conduct is by overcoming fear and by receiving Christ as Lord. The, N- the NIV says, but honor Christ in your heart as Lord. And in the ESV, it says to, right, to, to put him in your heart as holy. It requires overcoming fear. Verse 18 explains uh, Jesus' ultimate victory, which is the reason that in the end we don't have to be afraid. It says in verse 18, look with me. For Christ... Also suffered once the sins, the once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the first thing we learn here about why we don't have to be afraid is because of what God has done for us. He says the reason that you can have confidence, have this transformed experience, perspective on life, is ultimately because of what Jesus has done for you. He died on the cross for you, the unrighteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. We have this incredible, untouchable hope because of the resurrection of Jesus, which assures us that we have salvation with God that no one can touch. No one can take this away from us. No one can threaten this. And so if you believe that, then there are a couple of really important facts about your life that not even the worst boss or the cruelest tyrant in our world who persecutes you could change. Your life is in God's hands. You have sins that have been paid for already. You have been brought to God. You have eternal life prepared for you. You, through Christ, Christ can come before God with a good conscience, being unashamed, unafraid, completely set free from shame, completely set free from guilt, and know that you have a loving Heavenly Father who has gone the distance for you. And this creates, doesn't it, an incredible sense of peace, an incredible sense of hope, a freedom from fear. Right? Your boss can't take that away. The government can't take that away. An unkind family member can't take that away. Why are we giving our power out to everybody all the time? Right? Why are we acting like what people think is the basis for our personal security? Why do we act like an unkind boss is is so devastating to us? Can it be hard to be in the world and have people that are mistreating us in various ways? It can be hard, but the thing is we don't have to give them power over us in terms of their perspective having any weight whatsoever about your eternal condition that is unchangeable. It is guaranteed by what Christ has done for you. They cannot touch it. And that's why Jesus says very clearly, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. Don't be afraid of them. Right? Have you given people too much authority in your life? Have you given your boss, have you given family members too much power over you to speak about your ultimate worth and your ultimate value? Peter says they cannot touch this. Christ is victorious for you. Your position is guaranteed. It is going to be okay. And then he goes on, and this is the most tricky passage I think I've ever had to preach at Grace so far in this last year. This is what, so look at verse 19 with me. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is a tricky passage. Um, the spirits in prison, verse 19, what's that in reference to? They're kept in some sort of prison. What's that in reference to? And uh, Jesus, you know, he died on the cross, but he's alive in the spirit. He goes and he preaches the gospel while his body is dead. He proclaims something. And what does this have to do with Noah and the ark and the baptism? So uh, if anybody wants to come up here and tackle this part for me, I would be very grateful. Any takers? So, listen, the commentaries are kind of all over the map on this section, okay? Um, there's lots of different interpretations here. It's very mysterious because even the passages that are being referenced here are also mysterious. And there's a lot of kind of just speculation about, about what this all means. It's possible that Peter is drawing on material from First Enoch. Uh, First Enoch is not in our Bible. Uh, it's, uh, it's not recognized as part of Scripture for us. However, Peter most likely was familiar with it, and so he could have been referencing uh, stuff that happened there. Um, it's also possible, I would say likely, if you read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw that the women of the daughters of men were desirable, and so the sons of God went and uh, married the women, and they had these, these supernatural, kind of super powerful children who came to be called the Nephilim. Uh, in Genesis, and they were the heroes of old, it says in Genesis. But again, that, that's, very, that, that, that's very kind of mysterious. Um, so God took these, these fallen angels, and, and you know, from what we can understand, the, the spirits, again, are not people, right? So spirits used in this context is usually not referencing people. So the, the commentary suggests that the spirits that are kept in prison were angels. So they were angels, they are fallen angels that came. They did stuff in the world that they shouldn't have done. So God kept them kind of secure, kept them in prison, right, until he could be ultimately victorious when Jesus died on the cross. So basically what Peter is suggesting here is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the cost for sin, so he was victorious. So in his, right, on, I guess on Saturday, right, between his death and resurrection, he traveled by the Spirit to some place and then essentially declared victory over these spirits. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, the commentary says, this is what it says. I'm just going to read it. The passage refers to a proclamation of judgment by the resurrect resurrected Christ to the imprisoned spirits, that is the fallen angels, sealing their doom as he triumphed over sin and death and hell, redeeming human beings. Listen, folks, this is what this is. This is a spiritual victory march, okay? This is what Peter, this is all, all he's saying. Jesus on the cross was completely victorious. He went and he told those, those evil spirits, I'm victorious, I've won. You're defeated, right? I've paid for sin. God is victorious. This, that's the point Peter's trying to make, right? How do we come to this place of, of being so confident in the world, even when we're being so mistreated? Because the people of God need to know that at the end of the day, we will be vindicated, right? At the end of the day, we will stand before God and know that God accepts us and that everything that we went through will result in a glorious crown of life and joy that God's going to bestow on us, right, at the judgment when he takes all of his children, all those who have put their faith in Christ, 
and he welcomes them into his eternal kingdom. And Peter is saying the fact that Jesus, even right now, has gone on this victory march, he's died on the cross, he's been resurrected, he is now seated at the right hand of God in eternal glory. He is fully, fully victorious. He's going to rescue you. He's going to vindicate you. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be afraid. Then he references Noah. He talks about Noah and the ark. And the interesting thing there is the Noah situation is very similar, right? For those of you that know the story in Genesis, God told Noah to build a flood. Uh, Everybody else was partying, living life, being married, and having a good time. And they're like, Noah, what in the world are you doing? You're building this big this big ark. And so the idea is that people were mocking him, but then when the flood came, what happened? Well, God rescued Noah and the, and the eight. And so Noah was vindicated. So you see, he's, he's referencing that again. Maybe you feel that way as well. Maybe you feel like everyone's laughing and everyone's just having a good time. And here I am trying to, to do the right thing, trying to be the, right, the, the good person, trying to follow Christ in the world, but the world thinks I'm crazy. He says, just think about Noah. Think about the vindication. God lifted him up in the ark and saved him from the waters. So then Peter says that, and then he says, by the way, the water is, is, is actually about baptism, but not about removing dirt from your body, but rather what? The pledge of a clean conscience before God. What he's saying is that because of your baptism, and what is baptism about? Baptism is about the washing away of our sins, right? Being welcomed into God's family. Because our sins have been cleansed, your conscience is clean. And with a clean conscience, it means you can stand before God and be completely unafraid and have no guilt and look God in the eye and say, Lord, I believe in you. Welcome me into your home. And as it, having a clear conscience, having your sins washed away, having been redeemed by the blood of Christ who died and was resurrected for you, you will be welcomed into your eternal home. This is all about Peter giving you the confidence you need to stand firm in your faith and recognize you do not need to be afraid. We are called to suffer, called to non-retaliation, the reversal principle modeled by Christ himself who did it for us in order to bring us to God. It may be the case, I'll close by saying this, it may be the case that the believing community will face a time of testing. Perhaps there will be a time, and perhaps that time has already come, where being a follower of Jesus will bring suffering, disgrace, ridicule, and difficulty. And if and when that time comes, how will you respond? How will you respond? Because for Peter, there's only two ways. There's the world's way, and there's Christ's way. The world's way says, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to retaliate. I'm not going to take this from people. I'm going to dish it right back. I'm going to get even. I'm going to take revenge. I'm going to take power, make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. That's the world's way. But that is not the way that the believing community is called to. It's not the way of Christ. Christ laid down his life. He suffered for his enemies in order to bring them to God. And so the church is called to follow the way. There's only one way. Right? The Mandalorian, what he said? This is the way. This is the way. This is Jesus' way. This is what we're called to. This is the way that the church can point the world to Christ. It's the way we can be the best advertisement for the power of the gospel. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that even right now, that by your Spirit's power, you would cause a courage to well up within the body of Christ, that every single person that has put their faith and trust in Christ today would sense that they are safe within your loving care, that you are the chief cornerstone, you are the rock, you're the foundation of our lives, and that we have power through your Spirit to live in this way, to live as Christ in the world, to be an advertisement for the kingdom of God because we do not return turn evil with evil, but rather we return it with love. We return it with compassion. I pray, Lord, that the church would embrace this calling and not be afraid, but trust that you are the God who vindicates. You are the God who rescues. You are the God who cleanses. You are the God that holds our life in your hands and that you're going to see us through to the very end. We do not need to be afraid. So may we rise up with courage today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.